listening to Truth Jihad Radio, where we've been talking about 9-11 and other forbidden topics since 2006. If you like the show, please subscribe at Substack. You can find it by way of truthjihad.com. Just click on the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the radio show that goes all out for truth, starting with 9-11 truth and moving on from there to all of the biggest issues that are being covered up or spun or completely suppressed or lied about in the corporate-controlled mainstream. Today we're going back to 9-11, the mother of all false flags and the mother of all red pill issues with the author of a terrific new book summarizing the best evidence against the official story. Jamie McPhail is the author of Unraveling the Lies, and it is available free of charge on the internet. And so this is actually a good book to pass out to any, if there are any intelligent, sentient beings that haven't yet figured out 9-11 in your neck of the woods, uh, you can pass them the URL for this. They can take a look at it for free and see what they think. So, hey, it's, it's a valuable book. Thank you so much, uh, Jamie. And how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. Nice to talk to you, Kevin. Yes. Yeah, good to have you. So it's, uh, I, I noticed that you've kind of, it's in a way, this is sort of like a, an update of, of the kind of information that David Ray Griffin has been working on for so many years. But instead of uh, 14 volumes or whatever he's published, you've packed it all into one volume. Yeah, David Ray Griffin has been a great... Um, uh, source of all information on 9-11, you know, along with a few others, such as um, David Chandler, of course, Kevin Ryan, um, Kevin Fenton, of course, writing on the um, the uh, issues around the intelligence agencies. Um, yeah, there's so many people. Graham McQueen, of course, is great, has been a, a great contributor to the, to the cause as well, and uh, Mark Gaffney, just to name a few. But, um, I've kind of read all their stuff and sought to put it all together into one coherent um, narrative, but trying desperately to avoid getting caught up in rabbit holes, which 9-11 is absolutely replete with. You know, there's so many areas of 9-11 that um, if you're not really careful, you can just get caught into a particular perspective that can be then uh, knocked down and destroyed as an argument. So I've tried to keep clear of the pitfalls of, um, and I mean, for example, um, the Pentagon is a classic one where, you know, most people that have written about 9-11 have always uh, followed the line about, about um, you know, that it's a cruise missile and there's no, no evidence of the 757. Um, and I had that view myself as well, actually, for many years until I um, came across the research of David Chandler, Wayne Coast, and um, their colleagues on, on, the, on the website 911speakout.org, which is very, very good and very useful to, to investigate for those who are interested in the Pentagon. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, that's one of the black, that, not one of the black holes, that's one of the rabbit holes of 9-11, as I see it, in terms of understanding what happened, is that we can very easily get caught into the idea that there was no plane that went into the Pentagon. And um, 
the Re- rabbit, rabbit hole is a good metaphor for that. Uh, since there are those two holes, there's the uh, the hole on the outside, uh, and then there's the interior hole in the E-ring, the central of the five, five uh, rings in the Pentagon. And just a, a cursory examination, especially uh, of the out uh, the exterior hole, uh, without knowing uh, the larger context, can easily make it seem very obvious that there was no big plane. And the closer, absolutely, it, yeah, absolutely. And um, Major Stubblebine was a, a great advocate of that, and he, of course, was a, a major figure within the American Army. And he came out and said, I can't remember when it was, about two thousand and five. Said. The plane does not fit the hole. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, it was like if if the plane does not fit, you must acquit. (laughs) Yeah. So there's no there's no plane. So um, you know, must have been a cruise missile. But of course, the um, there is very clear evidence. Um, I show I've um, borrowed some pictures from 9/11 Speak Out to put in the book. um, It's online, as you mentioned, um, where it is very clear that there was structural damage along about a 90-foot area of the um, the front of the Pentagon there, um, indicating that, yes, uh, actually it wasn't a cruise missile, it was something much larger that caused that amount of damage. I know this is a contentious view. There are still many people, um, you know, in the 9-11 truth movement who still maintain that um, it was a missile and it, it, or, or bombs and, and um, nothing to do with the 757. But... Um, uh, I would challenge that view myself, and, and the evidence relating to the uh, what I'm going to call the shenanigans of Dick Cheney um, in the um, presidential emergency operate, operating center that morning um, is further evidence indicating that it was actually the, a 757 that went into the Pentagon, and it was Flight 77. Okay, and, and go ahead so, and, and describe well, what were Cheney's antics that would reinforce that view. Okay, well, it's not his antics. It's the fact that he was there, and it was denied by the 9-11 Commission. They went out of their way to embellish this story of how Dick Cheney did not appear in the, um, the, the PEOC until 10 o'clock or possibly, let's say, 9.58, they say. Absolute nonsense. There's so much evidence. Um, do you want me to give the evidence? I mean, it's in the book. Yeah, yeah, sure, okay. you might, might as well. Um, we've, you know, it's been so many okay, years so since my listeners have, have been reading, you know, Griffin's book on this. And so go ahead and, and describe the, that, those shenanigans about where was Cheney uh, that day? Oh, Dick Cheney was definitely in the um, Presidential Emergency Operating Center way, 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 way before the plane hit. Now, the evidence is, is there's, several ele- there's several elements to it. First of all, the... Everybody knows about Norman Mineta's evidence to the commission that was um, deliberately uh, blocked out. It was not. It was not. Um, uh, it was not a part of the final report. He gave very clear evidence that he was in the um, PEOC with Dick Cheney, um, and he says that he was in there at approximately 9:20, um, and that a young naval aide um, whose name was Douglas Cochrane came in and said, uh, Vice President, Mr. Vice President, the plane is 50 miles out. Does the order still stand? Came in a few minutes later. Does the order still stand, Mr. Vice President? The plane is 30 miles out. And then finally came in and said, the plane's 10 miles out, Mr. Vice President. Does the order still stand? Of course it still stands, says Dick Cheney. 
um, as reported by Norman Mineta. Yeah, he, he whipped his neck around, as I recall. Was he, the, yes, he was. cropped his neck around, <laughs> but a very graphic description. Um, so that was Norman Mineta's evidence that he gave to the 9-11 Commission. Um, what, he, what was not included in his evidence to the 9-11 Commission, but was recorded in a BBC documentary that he participated in in um, 2002 where he gave exactly the same evidence for the BBC but um, he then went on to say and then shortly thereafter um, somebody came in and said Mr. Vice President there's been an explosion at the Pentagon i.e. the plane that's gone into it so um, that's the first piece of evidence about Dick Cheney being there um, the second substantial piece of evidence was presented by um, a gentleman called Eric Edelman, who in, at the time of 9-11 was the principal deputy assistant to the vice president for national security affairs. He was basically Scooter Libby's uh, deputy man. And uh, he gave an interview to Newsweek short in October, I think it was, 2001, and um, and gave the same evidence as Norman Mineta, which was that um, he was in the PEOC with Dick Cheney when, they, when somebody came in and, and told them that there'd been an explosion at the Pentagon. Now, that completely confounds the evidence that um, the 9-11 Commission tried to cook up, which was that he didn't get down to the PEOC until at least 20 minutes after um, there was the explosion at the Pentagon. And so why, and, why would they have wanted to cover up his presence uh, in the Pentagon around 9.20 in the morning, and the plane impact the, is about 9.37. Yeah. So what, why would that be something they would need to cover up? Well, simply because it shows that Dick Cheney was actually down there and knew that a plane was coming into into the Pentagon and that he deliberately gave a stand-down order. Mm-hmm. And he, he was angry. He, he was angry that his aide would even question whether the orders still stood. What could such orders Absolutely. have been that required coming back over and over? To, are you sure the order still stands, sir? Yes, of course they still stand. What could that order have been? Obviously, it wasn't the order to protect Washington and shoot down the plane. It was the or, quite the opposite. Exactly. Um, now, the thing is, that it gets even more bizarre. So there you've got two, you know, I mean, Norman Mineta was the Secretary of Transportation. So he was a very, very, you know, a top quality witness, if you like. Um, and as is Eric Edelman, you know, he's, um, he's Scooter Libby's deputy and his, his official ta- um, job description, as I mentioned, is principal deputy assistant to the vice president for national security. I mean, for, for the love of Mary, I mean, what can you say about that? You know, so here you've got two very, very influential, powerful members of, of the um, Bush administration, both saying Dick Cheney was there. And I know because, you know, because I was there too. Um, so, I mean, but it's not only that. I mean, this is, this is where it gets absolutely surreal. So there's the commission saying, oh, he wasn't there until 10 o'clock, let's call it 9.58, they say. But the point is, Dick Cheney, five days after 9-11, was interviewed on um, Meet the Press on, um, I can't remember, I think it was... Uh, NBC, NBC, anyway, whichever, yeah, I think it was NBC. And um, he stated on, live on television that he, had been, he was in the PEOC um, and then shortly afterwards heard that the Pentagon had been hit. So 
you know, I mean, what can you say? What can you say? Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and story, you know, it makes you wonder how the commission could get away with that uh, when it's just so absolutely. over the top. Well, they got away with murder, didn't they? I mean, they didn't even mention the, um, you know, in the entire 500-page-plus report, not a single mention of the third building that came down that day, World Trade Center 7, that wasn't hit by an aeroplane. They just, you know, magically erased it from the the uh, the story. Right. So, it, it, And uh, that, that's, of course, another issue. And it, I think in the past, one of the reasons that so many people in the 9-11 Truth Movement really got attached to the idea that no big plane hit the Pentagon was that it seemed like a very straightforward thing that you could show people with visual evidence and kind of, you know, quickly uh, convince them. And that's always easier in, in some respects than going over these kinds of discrepancies in people's testimony and so on and explaining why they're significant. You know, if you, if you only have 15 seconds before somebody's eyes glaze over, showing them a picture can sometimes work better than uh, trying to explain something complex. And Building 7 is, of course, the one that that works here, where it's such an obvious controlled demolition, whereas the uh, these holes in the Pentagon turn out to be possibly misleading. Um, so that's another question. You know, how, how did the commission get away with completely ignoring uh, Building 7? And what, what has been the, the kind of the history of the official attempts to explain Building 7 or attempts to not mention it? Sorry, what's the question there? Uh, maybe you could just you could run us through sort of the, the history of the official attempts to deal with Building Seven and its mysterious uh, near freefall collapse. Well, I mean, the, fir- the first point about some um, the, the commission and the World Trade Center Seven is you could say you could give them a, li- a teeny little bit of leeway on the grounds that um, NIST hadn't um, completed its report um, by the time by the time the nine eleven commission report came out. The, um, the NIST, NIST didn't complete their report for um, for seven years. Didn't, you know, it's, um, they they they, um, they didn't present it until August 2008, um, seven years after the event. Why did it take them seven years? Because it, they just didn't know what to make of it, quite frankly. And even um, founder the um, the the the, uh, the head scientist for for NIST admitted that you know they had enormous problems getting a handle on what happened at WTC7. So they, they, um, they did their computer simulations as to how it could have collapsed, and their computer simulations are absolutely absurd. You know, for example, they would, they would heat up areas of the building, um, but only heating the, um, the steel in the building, but not the concrete that was, a part that was attached to it. So they were getting completely false um, readings. And, um, yeah, and it was only, I mean, so, you know, they had their first um, uh, meeting about it where where they were uh, open to public comments in, uh, I think it was August 2008. It might have been a little bit earlier. And at that meeting, David Chandler challenged um, NIST saying, you know, I've done my computations, you could have done them, and it's very clear that for at least 2.25 seconds the, the building was in free fall. Um, of course, it's completely um, flummoxed this because uh, Sander, the, 
the, uh, the, the chief scientist there had previously said that it would have been impossible for um, the building to have collapsed for a free fall for any period of time, but he was then forced to acknowledge um, due to the, the uh, information and evidence that was presented to him by David Chandler, um, he had to then go back and come back and say, yes, there was free fall, but that was it. No explanation given as to how there could possibly have been free fall when, you know, free fall cannot possibly happen in the absence of a controlled demolition. Right. Um, there, there's an interesting history of uh, sort of disinformation and, and uh, earlier sort of tentative and generally ludicrous attempts to explain these collapses or explosions or whatever you want to call them with seven as well as the towers. I remember the talking point early on was that Building 7, of course it, it blew up and came down because there was a huge power substation in the basement, and, and that was complete nonsense. And, and to its credit, I guess the uh, NIST team admitted that. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But I guess they couldn't possibly put out any any actual detailed report that <laughs> claimed that the power station had something to do with it. But yeah, and then there were a bunch of tentative reports on the towers as well that talked about pancaking and so on and so forth. That the uh, final report, of course, admitted that no, there was no such thing as pancaking. And final report couldn't even come up with any scenario to explain the actual uh, destruction of the building. All it could do was claim to explain the destruction of the top uh, several floors, and then throw up their hands and say, well, and somehow that caused the whole building to disappear. Yeah, I mean, the sub, it's interesting you mentioned the substation because that was initially presented as a possible explanation for the collapse, that it was built on, on unstable foundations and all the rest of it, but they did refute that. And then, of course, they came up and said, you know, initially um, one of the propositions was that it was fires caused by, by uh, debris that had fallen from World Trade Center 1 onto the building, but that caused other problems. They, had to, they then had to get rid of that as a theory because that raised another issue, which is, okay, well, if, um, if all that debris managed to travel, you know, 370 feet, that, doesn't, that couldn't have happened in a, in, a gravity, uh, in a gravitational collapse. That would have had to have been due to uh, a, an explosive expulsion of material that would have traveled such a far distance to have then impacted on World Trade Center 7. So they then discounted that because they realized that that opened them up to the, to the, uh, the, the charge of, of um, the, the two towers having been brought down by controlled demolition. Um, so they were then left with just fires. But of course, you know, anybody who looks at those buildings will see that the fires were, you know, yes, there were fires. There were fires on isolated floors, but they None of them were long-lasting fires and, um, uh, and certainly wouldn't have been sufficient to have caused any kind of collapse of the buildings. I mean, the firemen who were outside were all saying, why are, we, why are you keeping us out? We, you know, we want to get in there and, and put that fire out. And, you know, they were told they couldn't go in there. Why couldn't they go in there? We have to ask ourselves. Um, presumably, the reason was because certain people knew that that building was supposed to be coming down. I mean, I suspect that the reason that um, WTC7 didn't come down much earlier in the day was because somehow there was a, a default in the, um, in, the explosion, in the explosives, 
we know that certain explosions took place because um, uh, Barry Jennings and Michael Hess, who got stuck in the building, reported those um, explosions at 9.30 in the morning. But somehow the rest of the explosions didn't take place and the building didn't collapse. So why weren't the firemen allowed in there? I suspect, I don't know this for certain, but I suspect the reason is that um, when they realized that the building wasn't coming down as planned, they needed to get their own uh, explosives experts into the building in order to re recalibrate it to make sure that it did come down. And, um, yeah, but... Um, there's, there's an interesting no parallel there between Building 7 and, and the towers. Uh, we know from the testimony of William Rodriguez and many, many other people that uh, some huge explosions uh, wiped out the sub-basements, uh, did terrific damage to the sub-basements, badly injured a number of people, and uh, yeah. possibly even killed people in the lobby. Uh, and those explosions happened uh, somewhere in, what, 10 seconds or so, I forget the exact number of seconds, before the plane hit. And so, likewise, we have these early explosions in Building 7 that did not directly cause the immediate collapse uh, as you said, those were sort of around 9.15, uh, uh, according to Barry Jennings and, and Michael Hess. So uh, in both cases, we had these early explosions uh, destroying lower sections, uh, doing tre- tremendous damage to the lower parts of these buildings, both Building 7 and the North Tower, maybe the South Tower, too, for all we know, uh, but not actually initiating the final collapse. And that makes one wonder... Uh, whether there's a reason for that, uh, what, what do you what, what do you make of of that evidence of these huge explosions before the plane hit in the North Tower? Well, I mean, you know, the the the, um, the, the people who've presented that evidence are, are very reputable people, and um, you can't argue with the fact that um, the evidence that they've given. Um, I'm more interested, in one sense, with the the evidence of Jennings and Hess inside WTC seven, because. Um, because because we know that they were going down a staircase that was on the northeast side of the building, um, which was because um, basically NIST and um, Juliani, Juliani, do you could say Giuliani or who? Uh, Giuliani. Giuliani. Giuliani made a big thing, as did NIST, about saying, "Oh no, they got it all wrong. They didn't. They didn't. They when when they thought they were here, you know, explosions. That was some um, impact of the buildings." collapse the, the collapse of world trade center one but it doesn't make any sense at all for various reasons one being the, that um the staircase they were on was on the northeast side of the building which was way you know it's so far i mean it's impossible for debris from world trade center one to have caused the damage to the staircase in um in the northeast side of the world trade center seven building and um and also they were saying that it happened an hour later and that, that uh, Gliani and uh, Jennings were sitting around on the 23rd floor of World Trade Center 7, presumably twiddling their thumbs, wondering why the entire building was empty. They'd been called there to attend. Uh, I mean, I suppose I should explain. Jennings was the, um, I think he was the deputy head of housing for New York and Hess was the leading attorney um, for for the New York City Council, and um, so they'd been called to this meeting at um, uh, on the 23rd floor of WTC7. But as soon as they got there, they realised that the building was empty. This is just around nine o'clock, just before the second plane hit um, the South Tower, 
And, um, you know, uh, according to NIST and, and uh, Rudy Giuliani, um, these, these two guys sat around for an hour or two on the 23rd floor with all hell breaking out around them and um, not making any effort to get out the, out the building. I mean, I'm just picking out various little points. It's just, you know, when you right. just start putting the story together, it's just nonsensical. And, and the, um, B, the BBC played a role in, uh, oh, in, in putting out total nonsense about Barry Jennings right at the time that Barry Jennings died. As I recall, this was in 2008, yeah. uh, August yeah. of 2008. Uh, they were just, NIST was coming out with its Building 7 report. And uh, Jennings had told this story that just totally blew the official version of Building 7 out of the water. Uh, and then suddenly, out of the blue, uh, Jennings supposedly died of undetermined causes. And nobody, including his family, would tell anybody what those causes were. The yep. uh, loose change filmmakers, Dylan Avery, etc., hired a uh, pretty savvy, apparently private investigator to look into Jennings' mysterious death. And then he came back and returned the sizable sum of money shortly thereafter, saying, this is above my pay grade. Uh, yeah. So something very strange happened there. And then the BBC came out with its uh, Building 7 documentary, which attempts to debunk uh, Jennings' account. So Jennings is killed or whatever or put into witness protection. He's, Jennings disappears from the face of the earth with no cause of death at the exact moment that the BBC puts out this ridiculous attempt to smear him. Uh, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Oh, no, and, and the interesting thing was in the first documentary the BBC did, it, it was called The Conspiracy Files, and the first one they interviewed Jennings, as you say, and, um, and of course, Jennings blew the, the whole story out of the water, and um, then, fortuitously for the official story, he he died in circumstances, as you point out, that nobody is very clear about how he actually died or anything. You know, point is he did die just at the point where the final NIST report was coming out. And hey, presto, the BBC suddenly get Michael Hess to come on their conspiracy files. So they, they changed the whole story of the conspiracy file story and um, have Michael Hess giving evidence, even though on the day of 9-11 he'd been talking to reporters and, and um, you know, explaining that, he'd been, that they'd heard explosions and all the rest of it inside the building. And now he comes out and says, no, I'm very clear on this point. There were no explosions. What I thought were explosions was actually the, um, the, the collapse of World Trade Center 1. And... Um, which, you know, happened at 10.28. And, and nobody asked him is, why he would just be sitting around in the empty <laughs> lunchroom with half-eaten yeah. sandwiches for two hours doing nothing while a building, you know, skyscrapers around uh, that area are, are blowing up and stuff. It's crazy. Well, the thing is that Barry Jennings had, um, had said that in his evidence, he'd already said that when he got up to the 23rd floor, he got a phone call from somebody saying, you need to get out of that building and you need to get out of that building right now. And, and his response was, and that's what we did. We started going. And he said they were going down the staircase because the elevators weren't working. And, um, and he, was, he was so scared. He was, like, he, wasn't, he was taking you know, whole levels at a time. He was jumping down. He, he, he damaged his knees quite badly. Um, because he was literally um, jumping down 10 steps at a time to get the hell out of that building before whatever was, you know, 
he'd been told to get out pretty quickly. So that's what he was trying to do. Got down to the sixth floor. Now, this couldn't have been, you know, if you bear in mind that he, he they arrived there shortly after nine o'clock and, um, and then the second tower got hit and World Trade Center 7 is completely empty, not a single person in there apart from those two. Um, you'd be thinking, let's get out of here. Those two, those two towers have just been hit. We don't know what's going to happen next. They wouldn't have been dawdling around, and they weren't. They were trying to get out, got down to the sixth floor, and, you know, you can imagine that, you know, if you put the time scale together, say the latest it could have been would have been 9.30, and then they an explosion blows the whole staircase away between uh, floors six to eight, and they manage to crawl their way back up to, to the eighth floor and, and then wait there for an hour and a half before they get rescued. And, um, yeah, so what was that explosion? What right. was that explosion? You know, of course, Hess, is, Hess uh, on that Conspiracy Files program, uh, tried to do away with that whole kind of story and said, no, 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 I'm absolutely sure it was definitely not an explosion. It was, um, you know, just the sound of debris from, from the collapsing towers. And um, believe what you will, believe what you will. Right. So the uh, disappearance of Barry Jennings uh, is memorialized in the, uh, I think it's JenningsMystery.com is the website, I think it is. And I will link oh, that. Oh, is it? I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, that's still up. Last I heard, and so I'll, I'll link yeah. that at the radio schedule page about this show. People can find the radio schedule page by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the radio schedule link. And then we'll also, of course, link your book, which is free online, and it's a very, very high quality book to be a free online book. Well, you know, another strange death, uh, a very dubious death around Building Seven. Uh, was that of Danny Jowenko, apparently one of Europe's, if not Europe's greatest uh, expert on controlled demolitions of buildings. Uh, did, did you mention that in the book? No, no, I don't. No, that's new to me. Are you talking about the guy who was the, the Dutchman who was interviewed yeah. without knowing? I know it was on YouTube years ago, and he was shown video footage, and but didn't know anything about what it was. And he just said, "Yeah, that's definitely that's de that's planned demolition, absolutely, one hundred percent." So that right, guy, right, had right. He says that a team of experts did this, you know, and he kind of marvelled at, at how good they were, you know, what a perfect uh, demolition oh, yeah. that was. Well, it was a pretty, it was a pretty good collapse, wasn't it? Let's face it. Right. I mean, it, and then it wasn't long I, after that that Danny Jewenko, uh died in a single car accident. Ah, um, oh, yes, brakes seized up, did they? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Mm, well, yeah. But um, one of the interesting things that um, if anybody's in any doubt about, about, about World Trade Center 7, what really what um, kind of was a, uh, a game changer for me was when I looked at that collapse for the first time. And I didn't, I didn't see any, it was only about 2007, 2008 that footage came out of, the, you know, that I saw anyway. And if you look at as the building collapses, apart from the fact that on the two sides of the building that you can see, there is no evidence of any fire whatsoever, um, both in pristine condition still. Yes, there were fires on the, on the side of the building facing towards the, um, the World Trade Center one. But the, um, the north and east sides of that building 
we're completely and utterly unaffected by any damage whatsoever. No evidence of any fires in any of the windows. And, um, so even if what, for whatever reason that building collapsed, it should, have been, it should have been an asymmetrical collapse. It should have been into the point of least resistance where the damage had been done rather than just coming down. Uh, now, the point is, if you look at the, if you, you know, it's only about, it's only about 6.7 seconds or whatever it is, the whole collapse. But just as the building starts to collapse, if you look up the right-hand side, you see all the, the, um, the telltale squibs of, um, of explosions that are taking place. And they're going, they're rippling up the body of the building rather than down. Now, it, now that's interesting because NIST uh, and many others have argued that um, all the evidence of the squibs that were seen in, in the World Trade Center buildings when they came down um, was just compressed air forcing, smash, for, forcing air out of the, the windows. And um, But in terms of World Trade Center, I mean, Kevin Ryan has done a, a remarkable piece of work in terms of showing how that's absolute nonsense because of the structure of the World Trade Center buildings anyway, which I do refer to in the book. Um, uh, I mean, he's, he did some remarkable work in showing how even if there had been compression, it wouldn't have caused those kind of squib effects because of the, the layout of the building, because of the elevators, because of the open planning and all the rest of it. Um, so, but seeing those squibs, going up the building completely confounds the idea that it could have been caused by compressed air because the compressed air would be forcing it downwards rather than upwards. Anyway, right. Right. Absolutely that's, right. something for, that's something for people to, to um, have a look at um, because obviously the, the, um, the collapsed buildings of WTC7 are very, very available on the internet. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so uh, more that, that evidence. This uh, discussion of the apparent controlled demolitions of these skyscrapers, and indeed the the entire trade center was destroyed, and there were just there were explosions in buildings five and three apparently as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so every every building with a WTC prefix was totaled, and no buildings without them were totaled, and that makes no sense given the location of the towers, the locations of other WTC and non WTC buildings in the area. Uh, but in any case. Uh, I wanted to bring up the issue of your chapter on foreign involvement, which is quite good as far as okay. it goes. Uh, doesn't touch on what strikes me as some of the most interesting evidence of foreign involvement, which is the way that the World Trade Center was privatized just in advance of 9-11. That is, yeah. you know, in, the, yeah. in the summer of, of 2001, they uh, basically the, the Port Authority, which was run by three uh, people who were of very uh, strong uh, pro-Israeli views. They were this, like Republican uh, billionaires: uh, Frank Lowy, Louis Eisenberg, Larry Silverstein. And these, these, I think, I think it was Eisenberg who was the chair of the Republican Finance Committee. So his job was bringing money to the Republican Party. So these, uh, these, well, two of the three at least. I'm not sure if Silverstein was a billionaire yet at that time, but these were billionaire, uh, kosher nostra, you know, people with mafia reputation. Silverstein got his start in prostitution. He ran prostitution clubs on Long Island, and that's how he made his oh, money. Did he? Oh, yeah, and put it oh. into real estate. He's, he's, he's known as kosher nostra. And, uh, right. Haretz, of course, reported that he was on the phone. He's, he's on the phone every weekend 
with, uh, with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's a very, very close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu. So these three, um, basically kosher Nostra, um, Israel, pro-Israel fanatics, uh, including one of them who raises all the money for the Republican Party uh, that put Bush and Cheney in office, these are the people who orchestrated the privatization of the Trade Center. They didn't right. give it to the, the high bidders. They gave it to Larry Silverstein, right? the prostitution guy, the, the, the pimp. <laughs> and the yeah, pimp well, Silverstein, Silverstein. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't pay much up front for those buildings either, I, I understand. Uh, no, he, certainly... paid, he paid 15 million or so of his own money and then another 100 million or so from his backers. And then he would, thanks, you know, these buildings were condemned for asbestos. Uh, and they had antiquated communications equipment. The city had been desperate to demolish them for years and couldn't do it because there was no yeah. economical way to do it with all that asbestos. And so then suddenly uh, the, the kosher Nostra moves in, privatizes them, hands it to Silverstein on a silver platter, even though he's not the highest bid. And then he doubles the insurance. Uh, and on 9-11, uh, he happens to not be at the top of the North Tower in Windows to the World eating breakfast, as he is every other day, because he says just as he was leaving the house, his wife reminded him of a uh, a, a medical appointment. Uh, and so he survived to collect not only that doubled insurance uh, from two months earlier when he had bought the Trade Center, but also he redoubled it by claiming uh, double indemnity for two completely separate and unrelated terror attacks, the two planes. Uh, yeah, he didn't. He didn't manage to get the full full amount, though, did he? I think he got about seven and a half, rather than I think he was trying to get nine nine billion, and he only yeah. The, the poor, original poor figures were five and seven. He, he originally, you know, the original one was he got five and a half out of seven billion that he asked for, but then I think there was another one too. Uh, he finally got slapped down, though, by Judge Alvin Hellerstein, uh, another uh, Israeli, basically, a guy whose family is all over in Israel. And when uh, there was a lawsuit uh, involving uh, a Ellen Mariani, who had lost her husband on 9-11, uh, that ended up like all the lawsuits, they were funneled into Hellerstein's courtroom. And the lawyer for Ellen Mariani asked Hellerstein to recuse himself because of all of his family in Israel, and they were bringing evidence that Israel was involved in 9-11. And so Hellerstein responded oh, yeah. by slapping sanctions on the lawyer uh, for being anti-Semitic. And <laughs> Mar- Mariani's case, like all other cases, well, they mostly got settled. But anyway, the point being that there is all of this evidence that the kosher nostra of Zionist, ultra-Zionist billionaires who largely run New York City uh, organized the demolition of the World Trade Center. And I don't see any of that in your section on foreign involvement. No, no. Um, uh, it's, I've, what I've tried to do, as I mentioned at the very beginning, is trying to avoid getting caught in into one particular rabbit hole or another. And, um, it's not a I've rabbit made, hole. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a rabbit hole in the sense that there's enough evidence out there, there's enough evidence in my book, in my opinion, to... to uh, create a, a, a legal body to have a have a proper look at the um the evidence and whatever where that evidence leads is where where one would hope that it will go and if that involves all sorts of conspiracies um involving israeli business then 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 that would be for the commission to have a good look at there's also you know i mean uh apart from you know, I mean, the, the whole thing about the art students and the, the high high fiving Israelis is mm. is a 
is a whole can of worms that, that needs to be looked at more deeply. I mean, how, why, why those Israelis were held for 70 days and failed um, lie-detecting tests and were still uh, not charged with any offences is, is, um, is rather curious. Um, and then we've got the issue of what was going on with um, Pakistan with, with, the fund, with the ISI um, headman in in Washington on the day of 9-11, having breakfast with Porter Goss and Bob Graham, who then led the joint congressional inquiry into, into 9-11. What is going on there, bearing in mind that, you know, there's a trail of money leading from ISI to Mohammed Atta, $100,000. Uh, and then we've got the whole issue of what was going on with the Saudi Arabians as well. So... Um, yeah, no, I mean, all those three countries need further investigation. No question about it. Israel, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. There's there's cans of worms there that nobody's going anywhere near. Right. I think the Silverstein can of worms though, was kind of the most glaring and obvious, since he actually he confessed to being you know, party to the decision to demolish Building 7 and then later tried to cover that up with a ridiculous uh, oh. <laughs> excuse. Right. Saying, yeah, yeah. He, said, he said, we, you know, a decision was made to pull and we watched the building collapse. Uh, you know, he decided the best thing to do was was pull it. And uh, so that that confession, uh, which was broadcast on a PBS documentary, is one of those things that when when you hear that and then you look at what happened to Building 7, you look at it coming down. And then you do yeah. just a little bit of inquiry into Silverstein's background. It's uh, just, the you know, it's a huge smoking gun. And I don't think that's even remotely comparable with things like Mohammed Atta and, and the ISI, which it, that was actually published in an in, a, a rabidly anti-Pakistani Indian newspaper. That was the source for that. And to, to the extent that it's true, it's obviously a setup. Just, you know, so pa- Pakistan was threatened uh, after 9-11, uh, uh, Musharraf has testified that Bush told him that if if he didn't obey Bush's orders, Pakistan would be bombed into the Stone Age. And oh, clearly yeah. so- something similar happened with Saudi Arabia, where uh, right before 9-11 in August 2001, the king of Saudi Arabia announced the time had come for a parting of the ways. Saudi Arabia was leaving the U.S. orbit because the people of the region would not stand for U.S. support of the genocide in Palestine. And then 9-11 happened, and clearly there was well, basically the, the honest people in the Saudi government were killed. So there were several murders, and what was left was the people who would toe the line and follow U.S. and Israeli orders. So the, the idea that there's foreign involvement and that Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Israel are on the same page is ludicrous. Uh, 9-11 benefited only one nation, and that was Israel. Uh, Pakistan no, no, had absolutely no motive. Uh, Saudi Arabia had absolutely no motive. Both Saudi Arabia and Pakistan were brought back into the Anglo-Zionist imperial orbit due to 9-11. That's not what anybody with those national interests in mind would ever want. Um, whereas 9-11 uh, saved Israel and was the best thing that could ever have possibly happened to Israel. So I, I think it's really wrong, just as it's wrong to analyze the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a sort of a an equal thing where it's, oh, it's just a conflict between these two sides and it's tragic. No, it's not. It's a genocide being systematically perpetrated over more than half a century by one side, which has all the power and is systematically committing genocide on the other side. Likewise, 9-11 was done by Zionists to uh, hijack the U.S. military and impose the Zionist agenda on the region and the world. And that's that's glaringly obvious. It was obvious to me, like when 9-11 happened, that the only beneficiary would be Israel. 
And uh, it's, I, I find it so mysterious that uh, the people who understand geopolitics uh, are so averse to admitting this and, and one can't talk about it. Uh, why, is it why is there this taboo uh, about just s- speaking the truth about what's going on in anything relating to Israel? No, I agree with you. You know that um, Israel does. I mean, as I mentioned there's, uh, as one of the authors I quote in the book says that you know you can't talk about Israel. You can't talk about Israel uh, if you want to have any kind of career because you know it's career suicide. So what does that say about who rules us? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Sorry. What, what does that say about who rules us? I mean, it's it's the the thing, you know. I, I found this out early on in the 9/11 Truth Movement that it was easier to cast aspersions on Bush and Cheney here in the United States than to cast aspersions on uh, Netanyahu and Sharon. Why would Americans? Well, I think you know. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I think the the important thing for me is to get people like Cheney, Rumsfeld's obviously no longer alive, but to get people like Cheney giving evidence. Um, under under oath, but also under lie detection, and getting the truth out of the the people who had the power to to control the machinations of the 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 um, the armed forces on that day. They're the people that need to be put on the spot, and let's get their stories out. You know, Myers, Eberhardt, uh, etc., um, General Canavan as well. Get those guys who were conspicuous by their incompetence on that morning to give proper evidence, and then we'll see where that leads. Well, that, I'm all in favor of that, of course. Uh, and uh, how about the speaking of people like uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld? Um, have you looked into Peter Dale Scott's work on how Cheney and Rumsfeld were part of a group? of military leaders and some corporate leaders, virtually all of them Republicans, who had set up a kind of a parallel succession system in case of a national yeah, emergency. Con- continuity of government. Continuity really. of I mean, government. To be honest with you, I haven't looked at it in any great detail, but I am aware that Rumsfeld and Cheney had got very, very grubby hands since the 1970s. Right. You know, they go, they go, they go back, 1970s, maybe 1980s. But, yeah, they, they're, you know, ever since... Um, Cheney was uh, Secretary of Defense. That was at the time of the first. Was that at the time of the first Gulf War in 1990? Anyway, those two guys had so much, you know, been up to so much dirt. It's. It, um, I just wonder where where Donald Rumsfeld's soul will end up. Quite honestly, now that he's passed on to the other side. Um, but Dick Cheney, I, I think he's, you know, he should be put before an international court and uh, and compelled. Um, under oath and with a lie detector, because I wouldn't trust him to tell the truth even under oath, quite frankly, um, to give the true story of what happened on 9-11. Because they know, well, Dick Cheney knows the whole story. He's your man. Start with Dick Cheney and everything else will unravel. It's um, my bottom line, I guess. Yes, I I, I agree. Putting putting all those people under oath. I guess we can't waterboard Cheney because his heart might give out, and then we would never know the truth. Well, that's so. right. <laughs> Just a gentle little lie detector. There I don't, you, go. you know, I think he'd have a hard job telling the truth about saying who he, who, what his real name is. Quite honestly. 
Right. But, um, so, so your book has a lot of uh, r- very good accounts of uh, some of the issues that there are some folks in the truth movement that haven't really heard too much about, such as Mark Gaffney's work on this mysterious uh, flying uh, what do they call it? Like the the, the oh flung... the E four B yeah the E four B plane yeah yeah well of course yeah the E four B is kind of command and control communication center. It's basically it's a it's a kind of government in the air in in you know if there was a nuclear um, war going on and the government needed to have its control system still functioning. Um, these planes would would be the the mode of operation. They there um there's, there's four of them in the, the well there were four of them at time 2001, and um, yeah Mark Gaffney did some re- very good research on that. One one of the E4Bs actually took off from Andrews Air Force right next to Washington at 9:26 a.m. that morning, so it was up in the air, um, and would have you know because they're they've got radar systems that you know are just you know, top top of the top of the range, they would have the people in that E four B would have known exactly what was going on with Flight seventy seven. There's no way they could not have known it. And they were up in the air twelve minutes before uh that plane crashed. Now uh, that's a strange that's a strange timing, isn't it? That you know, that twelve minutes before um the crash into the Pentagon you've got this this um command and control plane that um and of course, the Air Force have always denied that the, that plane ever took off. They deny it. Uh, you know, even even Republican senators who've um, uh, you know sought sought the information out from the from the the Air Force have have been denied access to that information. So you know, even members of the American government were not allowed to have the in, the information about what was going on with those E4Bs. Because another one took off um, shortly after the the, the um, crash at the Pentagon. Another one took off at 9:42, I think. But there was one up in the air 12 minutes before 77 crashed into the Pentagon. And uh, so that was presumably the source of information that um, uh, you know Douglas Cochrane was the naval aide was giving was giving to um, Dick Cheney that morning. So that E-4B, okay. the the kind of uh, flying uh, doomsday bunker, was was over D.C. when the Pentagon was hit, and uh, so that provided one sort of aerial view of what really happened. That of course has never been mm. released. And then there there was another aerial view that apparently uh, became unavailable because the National Reconnaissance uh, Office, where the satellite imagery is processed. Uh, was shut down that morning for one of the drills. Uh, Webster Tarpley has counted 47 drills, war game exercises, and so on related to 9-11, of which maybe 25 or so were actually scheduled on 9-11 itself, making it the most um, uh, heavily uh, scheduled war game exercise day yeah, in U.S. Yeah. history. And and so they shut down the satellite office that morning uh, on the basis of an exercise that imagined a plane crashing in to the National Recognizance Office. So they shut it down, everybody went home, and nobody was there to look at what the satellites were showing overhead. Uh, that's a, not yeah, a very interesting yeah. coincidence, isn't it? Oh, no, that's a really interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, Mark Gaffney's done some interesting stuff on that as well. Yeah, basically, they had to, the, um, the staff needed to be sent home in order to um, uh, prevent them from being aware of the shenanigans that were going on, basically. 
Right. Which also makes you yeah, wonder. Why, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, why, why would you send? Why would you send your experts? That are, you know, you've got a problem with um, what's going on up in the sky at the moment, and so you send all your experts who can ascertain what is going on up in the sky. Send them home. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I think that that was pre-scheduled. They were they were scheduled already to be sent home that day because of this. Oh, were they? Yeah, yeah. There was that imaginary exercise. They were they were playing a war game of a plane crashing into the National Reconnaissance Office, and that was pre-scheduled. So they, I think, they sent them home before uh, they just either didn't come into work or they, they it was shut down before the uh, the plane uh, the the funny business began with the planes on the morning of nine eleven. Well, that that sounds like a load of baloney to me. The I, I mean, yeah, I mean, they may well have been, it may well have been planned that they sent them home, but that would have been part of the plan as well, wouldn't of it? Of course, yeah, you and know? and that that leads to the issue of the war games and exercises. I always found that's one of the uh, the key areas. You've covered most of the key areas in the book. I'm not sure if you went into that issue of of those 47 war games and exercises. No, I didn't. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I did read Webster Tarpley's book, and I just got so confused. I didn't know if I was coming or going after yeah, I got to Rupert, ta- Rupert covers it, too. Yeah. Pardon? R- Rupert covers some of it, too. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I did just basically stay to the major few games that were going on that, that, that were sufficient in themselves to completely derail any kind of defense. You know, the fact that you've, you've got two different war games going on where, whereby most of your um, accessible planes are, are dispatched to Canada that's a that's a great way to um, ensure that you get a nice uh, um, empty response when you've when you've got hijacked planes in the air over American airspace. So, right. um, I, yeah, I mean, I could have gone into all that, but to be honest with you, Kevin, it's like I just wanted to keep things as simple as possible and not com- overcomplicate. I mean, the book's complicated enough as it is, but you know, um, going into forty-seven different exercises i mean wow you know who's going to follow that right and of course some of them we only know about from brief mentions and so on so it's it's sifting through them all and figuring out exactly what we really know about each of those exercises would be a real phd research project in itself i guess oh you know i mean you could spend your whole lifetime um, investigating those 47 exercises i should imagine um yeah i mean to be honest with you i started writing that book because i it just grew out of me just sort of out my own curiosity trying to make sense of what so I kind of almost wrote the book to try and make sense for myself what actually happened and um, so I you know I mean obviously you know synthetic terror is, is, a, is a very very interesting book but I just got you know I thought if I get too bogged down in into Webster Tarpley's 47 exercises it's not going to be I'm not going to get my head out there that, that's it's not. I'm not saying it's a rabbit hole. I'm just saying that it just gets so complex that, and I, you know, just want to keep things as straightforward and simple as as I possibly can. And that's why I started this. You know, when we started talking earlier on, I said all you need to do, all you need to know about 9/11 is what was going on with Dick Cheney and the PEOC. Mm-hmm. If you if you get your head around that. You don't need to know anything else because you've got your evidence there. And that's the evidence that there was a stand down order and there was a deliberate um, conspiracy to destroy the Pentagon. And from there, everything else unravels. Everything else unravels. Right. You've got your evidence and your key suspect, Cheney. Yeah. You know, that's all you need. Start from there. 
you know, you, the evidence is irrefutable. It's irrefutable. And he even gave it himself in that, that interview five days later. What a gormless fool he was to, 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 uh, to open his mouth there. But obviously he hadn't got it. They, you know, the, the thing is, no matter... So I play a lot of chess, and you can play a brilliant game of chess, and then you fuck it up with one bad move. Mm-hmm. and you've lost the game. And I would say that Cheney, admitting to what he did, that he, admitting that he was in the PEOC before the Pentagon crash, explosion, whatever, um, is, you know, that's your, that's your smoking gun and forget about World Trade Center 7. I think Larry Silverstein's pullet is, is another one right up there with Cheney. Yeah, well, no, that's... That's a bit of a tricky one, actually, because, you know, different people... I mean, I do talk about that, and I, I give him a little bit of wide berth on that one, simply because Pullet is, um, you know, different people would... You know, different people within the demolition world would actually challenge that, 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 that that's what it meant. But even if they did, the fact is that he then... He told another uh, what would appear to be a lie in, in saying that... Um, uh, that he talked to the the fire chief, the big fire chief, and you know, and the big fire chief said, "Oh, we've had so much loss of life, blah blah blah." But when he the was it, it wasn't Gancy, I can't remember the name of the guy, but um, it's in the book. But um, he denied having had any conversation with Silverstein. Well, right, but see, see that Silverstein obviously was was not uh, honest when he said, uh, "I was talking to the Ur." Fire department commander, and so he paused yeah. with that er before fire department commander, yeah. meaning that he, he was doesn't... filling in a false description. The real guy he's talking to is not the fire department commander; that's his cover job or cover his cover story. The guy he's yeah. talking to is the guy who's supervising the demolitions. He needs Silverstein before he pops his clogs. He also needs to be in there with Cheney. Okay, we're, we came to an area of agreement. Well, thank you so much, Jamie McPhail. We hit the uh, end of the hour, and I, I really appreciate your great book, 9-11, Unraveling the Lies. It's very well-written, uh, clear, concise, uh, a very maybe a perfect first book to give to people, educated oh, I people. I think so. On this. I think it's, 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 you know, I mean, I'm, you know, he says with all modesty, I think, I think I've, you know, I've taken the, the, the best of all those best, so the giants who came before me, the, the David Chandlers, the David Ray Griffins, the Kevin Ryans, you name them. I've mentioned them all earlier on, Graham McQueen. and um, You're standing on the Kevin. shoulders of giants. Yeah, and um, they did all the work. I've just kind of tried to synthesize it all and make it punchy enough for the lay reader to just get their head around the whole bloody nonsense of 9-11. Well, I say it? nonsense. In, 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 in the sense, the nonsense of the official story. And I think it does uh, blow the official story out of the water uh, very, very effectively. Well, great job. Congratulations. And I look forward to uh, promoting the book, hoping people will download it and send it to their friends. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's up at your website, which is jmcphail.org. That's J-M-A-C-P-H-A-I-L. Dot org, and I'll link that at the radio blog that people can find by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the radio schedule link. Okay, well, thank you, Jamie. Uh, it's been a, yep. a great conversation. It's a terrific book. Um, God bless. <laughs> Have a good Great talking to you, Kevin. Likewise. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye.